Cloud Atlas is brought to you by Cloud Zero, the cost intelligence platform that offers advanced visibility and optimization for your entire cloud environment. Eliminate wasteful spending, ship efficient code, and innovate profitably all in one platform. The only reason you can hear me right now is the cloud. In fact, you may not realize it, but you're a heavy cloud user. And not just because you sync your vacation photos with iCloud or share presentations in Google Drive. Every time you stream the new Taylor Swift album on Spotify, every time you rewatch The Office on Peacock, every time you settle an argument with a Google search or watch a how-to video on YouTube or have Yelp find you the actual best bagel in New York City, you're using the cloud. And you're not alone. Every single smartphone user uses the cloud on a daily, if not hourly, if not moment-to-moment basis. And of the nearly 8 billion people in the world, 6.5 billion own smartphones. Biologically speaking, we are a terrestrial species, but in terms of how we live, work, learn, and play, we are increasingly a cloud-native species. The thing is, outside of the tech community, people don't really know that. Now, at this point, people generally understand that the cloud is not literally a cloud of data floating somewhere above us. But when I ask friends and family to tell me what they think the cloud is, answers generally fall somewhere between data center and storage service. And that's not entirely wrong, but it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what the cloud is or what its impact has been. The more I ask around, the more I see this incredible phenomenon. Our lives are defined by the cloud, but we ourselves can't define the cloud. Why is that? Why why don't we understand it? Well, partly because it's extremely difficult to understand. But it's also because if you haven't been paying close attention to the development of the cloud, a lot has happened that nobody bothered to tell you about. Mostly, it was things happening behind the scenes at a certain digital bookstore that was trying to become the biggest company on Earth. Software engineers messing with the way that digital machines communicate, and in the process, stumbling into a technology that would completely alter the fabric of life. Without the cloud, there's no Uber, there's no Spotify, there's no YouTube, and there is certainly no Netflix and chill. So there's an incredible gulf between how much we use the cloud and how much we understand about the cloud. This podcast was conceived to fill in that gap with knowledge. I'm going to show you how this thing that many of us either don't know exists or don't really understand is powering life as we know it. I'm going to tell you the story of the cloud. And I'm going to have some help. Help from the people who built it. My name's Alan Vermeulen and worked for Amazon from 1999 through uh, 2021. For the first few years, I was part of engineering management and helped start the uh, AWS business, including running the engineering team there at the outset help from people whose ideas inspired it. My name is Matt Round and I um, joined Amazon as a software engineer and then I managed a small team of software engineers and then I directed Amazon's personalization department. Help from major cloud investors. My name is Michael Scott and I'm one of the founders and partners at Underscore VC. And of course, help from people who built businesses in the cloud. I'm Joe Kinsella. I'm the founder and CTO of Cloud Health Technologies and a overall cloud evangelist. I'll go from prehistoric times, that is what people did before the cloud existed, all the way up to the present day. I'll explore how we went from monolith to microservice architecture, from on-premise to distributed data centers, and ultimately from blockbuster to Netflix. 
Whether you work in tech or have only a cloudy understanding of all things tech, the story is a fascinating one. In this first episode, I'm going to break down the perfect storm of business pressure, growing pains, and technological limitations that made the cloud necessary. I'm Dustin Lohman, and this is Cloud Atlas. This is probably a good time to introduce myself. I'm an English major and musician who finds himself working for a cloud technology company. I have no engineering experience whatsoever. I remember trying to teach myself to code back in 2015 and quitting after precisely two and a half hours. And until recently, the extent of my own cloud knowledge was understanding that I stored my poems and half-finished novels in Dropbox. And let me tell you, this stuff is not easy to understand. Researching the cloud is a little bit like reading Ulysses. You spend a lot of time rereading passages, it really helps to have experts walk you through it, and a lot of the time it's easiest to understand things in terms of metaphors. At last, that English degree is paying off. Now the other reason why most of us don't have a great understanding of the cloud is because we're not paying for it, or at least not directly. Though an on-demand streaming service like Netflix would scarcely be possible without the cloud, the 12-ish dollars a month we pay for it feels like the modern equivalent of a movie ticket. So who is paying for it, and what does it cost? As I record this voiceover, it's late 2022. The public cloud as we know it today is just barely old enough to have a learner's permit. It was launched 16 years ago in 2006. When it was three in 2009, businesses collectively spent about $1 billion on cloud services. Cue Dr. Evil Pinky. By the time it was a teenager in 2019, businesses collectively spent about $100 billion on it. And this year, Sweet 16, businesses are expected to spend a whopping $500 billion on public cloud services. Now just to put that in context, $500 billion is about double the GDP of the Czech Republic. It's also five times the GDP of Ecuador, and about 500 times the GDP of Montenegro. In fact, 186 of the world's 212 countries have GDPs of less than $500 billion, putting the cloud comfortably in the 88th percentile. Now, especially in the early days, the story of the cloud is really the story of AWS, short for Amazon Web Services. Yes, that Amazon. The Amazon that Jeff Bezos and his then-wife Mackenzie Scott started as an online bookstore in their Seattle garage in 1994. The Amazon whose cardboard boxes litter the entrances of every house and apartment building in America. The Amazon that's one of five companies on Earth to have a market capitalization of more than $1 trillion. How many Dr. Evil Pinkies is that? AWS owns about a third of the total cloud service market, and in 2021 earned Amazon about $65 billion in revenue. So most people don't know that there's an entire line of business within Amazon that has nothing to do with retail. It originated as an internal engineering project, and all it does is sell web services, i.e. the cloud, to other businesses. Heard of Apple iCloud? That's actually AWS plus a sprinkle of Microsoft Azure. I did not have the scale and the scope in, in, you know, in my head that this was going to affect how everybody built software. I believe uh, that Jeff did. And, and so he helped drag me, kicking and screaming toward, yes, it absolutely makes sense to uh, engineer this in such a way that 
you know, that we can scale it to, to these enormous numbers. Now, way back in the mid-90s, Jeff Bezos was among the first to recognize the potential for e-commerce to overtake brick-and-mortar commerce. And less than a decade after that, he and his cohort were the first to recognize similar potential in the cloud. And it was about eight years before they had any serious competition, an eternity in the world of tech innovation. Part 1. The Everything Store. He calls his company Amazon.com, Earth's biggest bookstore. You can't drop by, not in person anyway. For the customer, Amazon only exists on the computer screen. In the year 1999, Amazon.com was becoming more than an online bookstore. Bezos and company had an extremely ambitious vision. They didn't just want to sell books or clothing or electronics. They wanted to sell everything. Amazon in late 99 uh, was in get big fast mode and it was an absolute land grab. That's Alan Vermeulen. He's not particularly fond of titles. Yeah, I don't really care that much about titles. But he was about as central as anyone to the development of AWS. He had a lot of different titles at Amazon, including chief technical officer, but at heart, Alan's a builder. I described myself in the early days, I was a simple Canadian farm boy who uh, went to engineering school. I like to uh, actually create things, whether those things are created out of bits and software or whether those things are created out of uh, boards and lumber. That's what I like to do. And, and I like to make it easier for people to build things more easily, which, which explains uh, most of my career. Before launching his professional career, Alan got a PhD in engineering from the University of Waterloo, where... What you actually spend your days doing when you're a graduate student is writing code. Uh, and I came to the realization really quickly that writing code is really, really hard, much harder than it should be. The challenge he's referring to is one that every software engineer was dealing with at the time. If you wanted to build a piece of software, you had to start completely from scratch every single time. Now, it gets a little technical here, so it's time for metaphor number one, building a building. Think of a software development project like a construction project. The same way there are lots of different kinds of software applications, there are lots of different kinds of buildings. They may fall into common categories, houses, office buildings, apartment complexes and such, but each one needs to be built to unique specifications. Let's think about building a house. Before you actually start building, you need to get your raw materials. Stone, wood, plastic, concrete. You'll also need more specialized parts for plumbing, electricity, irrigation, and nowadays, solar power. So imagine if instead of buying these materials from a retailer like Home Depot, you had to build each one yourself. You had to quarry your own stone and cut down your own trees for lumber and synthesize your own PVC pipe and hack together your own solar panels all from scratch. It would take a ridiculously long time just to get the raw materials and it would take you forever to get into the real project, building the home. And the challenge at the time was you were given a computer and the computer could run a language and, and uh and that was it. You weren't given any sort of components or any tools to work with. So if you wanted any of those components, you had to build them yourself. So as a result, people just spend enormous amount of time writing the same uh, basic building blocks over and over again. That's why it took Alan so long to write code in grad school. And in 1999, Amazon had an enormous amount of code to write.
1999, Amazon had already made a pretty substantial mark. It had gone public two years before, it was valued at about $25 billion, and it was starting to make the transition from digital bookstore to everything store. It had begun selling things other than books, things like clothing. But selling clothing, it turned out, was very complicated. The problems with the variety of books are absolutely nothing compared to the problems of, uh, you know, buying a sweater that's, that's a slightly different size or a slightly different color. Now remember, there was a time before we were sure it made sense to buy clothes online instead of at The Gap. If Amazon wanted to give customers the same level of flexibility that they had in The Gap, their software engineers had to code features for every element of that flexibility. They had to build features for size, for color, for fit, and for whatever other customizable features that their vendors offered. Now replicate that process for the waist size and the leg length of pants. Now replicate that process for whatever features it takes to sell a blender. A gray blender, a red blender with extra cups, a blue blender with extra cups and an extra blade. And every other permutation of every other product that a human being might someday wake up and want. That's not all. Think about this. If, if Amazon wanted people to prefer shopping on Amazon, they had to exceed the flexibility and optionality of shopping in person. Their solution there? Personalization. The personalization department at Amazon was responsible for uh, everything in the website and uh, in the wider kind of Amazon ecosystem that tailored itself specifically to who um, you were as a customer and what you'd done. So we used to think about trying to build a store for every customer. I guess it's one of the distinctive advantages of being um, an online operation is uh, unlike for a physical store, everyone has to walk into the same shop. You can't give different people different shops, but a, uh, a digital store, you can reconfigure the store entirely for every customer. They can have a completely customized experience. That's Matt Round. He directed Amazon's personalization team. So imagine if every time you walked into The Gap, all the shirts and pants and sweaters and beanies magically rearranged themselves so that you saw your favorite stuff first. So in addition to building tons and tons of features for tons and tons of products, Amazon wanted the site to magically rearrange itself depending on which user logged on. So they hired hordes of fairly young people who just wrote a ton of code that did all kinds of stuff, and it was not carefully engineered. I mean, some parts of it were, but, but a lot of it was... Um, you know, just thrown together as quickly as possible, very deliberately, because the goal was speed, not necessarily, you know, perfection. Yes, Amazon's paramount goal was speed, or to use an economics term, time to market. Time to market refers to the time it takes to get a product or feature to go from being an idea to being something that customers are actually using. The longer your time to market, the better the chance that your competition will beat you to the punch. But the faster your time to market, the better chance you have of defining the competition. And in 1999, Amazon was well positioned, but there was still no defining e-commerce leader. E-commerce was still a pretty marginal part of the retail economy, accounting for less than 1% of all retail sales that year. But it was growing, and fast. One CNN article from November 99 read, Few events have captured the imagination of so many so quickly as the notion of selling online, arguably the biggest development to hit retail since the invention of the cash register. And Amazon had competition. There were some other pure-play digital sites like eBay and Buy.com, may it rest in peace. There were brick-and-mortar stores trying to get into the digital game like Walmart, The Gap, and Barnes & Noble. And a big part of Amazon's competitive strategy was to make it easy for brick-and-mortar stores to sell on their platform. 
We started doing these very large partner deals on the e-commerce side that we called Merchant.com, where we do these deals with Target or Toys R Us or Marks and Spencer, where all of their website was powered by Amazon technology. That's Andy Jassy, Amazon's current CEO. He's the guy that replaced Jeff Bezos when he stepped down. The interview you're hearing was conducted by Michael Skok, S-K-O-K, not Scott. Michael is an entrepreneur and venture investor who just so happens to invest in Cloud Zero. You'll hear more from him later. In 1999, Andy Jassy was Jeff Bezos' shadow. That was literally his job title. He was always at Bezos' side, taking notes, observing his meetings, and identifying ways for the company to improve. When we went to deliver the solution to Target, which was really the first big one that used all of our technology that way that was on their website, it was uh, much harder than any of us thought it would be. Part of the difficulty stemmed from the coding issue that Alan was talking about. They were trying to do things with web construction and software that had never been done before. And if they couldn't do them, it would threaten their existence as a company. They had this incredible number of features to build, and they had to reinvent the wheel anytime they wanted to build any new one. But there was a deeper issue too, and it's an issue that when it came to wrapping my head around the cloud, it was probably the toughest one to understand. Business pressure made the cloud necessary, but technological innovation made the cloud possible. In the next episode, I'll go over the first giant leap in the direction of cloud technology, the death of the software monolith. Cloud Atlas is written, hosted, and produced by me, Dustin Lohman, with invaluable assistance from Natalie Jones, Greg Barrett, and many others at Cloud Zero. Credit also to Tim O'Keefe, our sound designer, composer, and associate producer. He made all those pretty sounds you hear in the background. A big thanks to Alan Vermeulen and Matt Round for their contributions to this episode, to Cloud Zero for trusting me to turn Cloud Atlas into a reality, and of course, to you for listening. Until we meet again, this is Dustin Lohman reminding you to keep your feet on the ground and your head in the cloud. Cloud.